0: Should be a black hardbound one somewhere around you, uh, and this morning's passage will be on the screen. Also, will be found on page two hundred and fifty-eight, two hundred and fifty-eight of the pew Bible. Um, I want to begin this morning with a video, and it is a it is a scene from that should be very familiar to you. This has gone viral, uh, and I also think that uh, it perfectly illustrates what we're talking about today is we're going to be talking about worship and we're going to be talking about what does it mean to live life with devotion and the reason I'm going to show this this is this is a little girl who's standing on stage with her peers um, and kids the reason that they're so funny is because they're able to live life unfiltered, right? They're not really conformed to uh, the expectations of a crowd. And so this, I'm not sure if this is a vacation Bible school or what, but uh, hope you'll enjoy. She's in it. Ha ha ha. And a child shall lead them, right? I mean, it is it is amazing to watch children because they get uh, what the essence of worship is, right? I mean, it is just about being who you are before the Lord. Now, this this morning is not primarily about um, any kind of outward expressiveness. But what we're going to learn as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 6 is that that worship is as much about a life laid down as it is songs that we lift up to God. It's both of those things. So we want to we want to look at what does it mean to have a wholehearted response to who God is and what He's done. And um, yeah, we're going to look at Second Samuel chapter six, and that may be sound like a remote place to learn about worship, but I think God has some really important lessons for us. And um, this scene takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 6 right after David had begun to rule as king. And um, as his first act of king, the thing that he wanted to do was bring the Ark of the Covenant, which was the picture of God's presence on earth. He wanted to bring it back to the center and bring it to Jerusalem where everyone could enjoy... um, But you're going to see that there are some unexpected things in this passage that we wouldn't think about when we normally think about worship. There is a well-intentioned man named Uzzah who the Ark of the Covenant is traveling by ox, and the oxen stumble, and he reaches out, and he touches the Ark, and he's struck dead, right? So that creates a little bit of tension in the picture of worship. And so we're going to wrestle with that. What does that mean for us As the people of God. And David, honestly, when God struck down Uzzah dead, um, he was pretty angry and he said, Well, I'm not going to take this ark any further. He says, I'm going to just park it right here at the house of a man named Obed Edom. And we're going to pick up the passage after God begins to bless the household of Obed Edom because the Ark of the Covenant is there. Uh, normally we stand when we read God's Word, but I'm going to read a, a lengthy portion this morning, so you may remain seated, but we want to listen in to the Word of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, who was also David's wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they Brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both. Men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, And this is dripping with sarcasm. How the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his female servants, as one of those vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And the Lord said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is binding and it's authoritative and we don't get to edit out parts that are difficult to understand. But in those parts, you reveal something of your character and your beauty. I pray that you would have us have rapt attention this morning. I pray that you would send your Spirit to help us to understand your Word. I pray that we would understand what this passage communicates. We don't get this automatically just by some academic exercise, but we need your Spirit to send illumination. I also pray um, that you would send a spirit of worship to us as your people that we would respond rightly to who you are and the mercy that we've received both in public and in private as a church and individually for your name's sake. Amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's both beautifully complex and wonderfully simple. It's complex because its subject is God. God is different than us. He is transcendent. He is, although we're made in His image and we reflect Him, there's some things that we don't share with God. And what comes into view in this passage are some ways that we are very unlike God. So there are some sharp edges in this passage. I'm not going to try to round them off for us. But what we're going to see as we press into the, the beauty and the complexity of God is there is a lot of reason to worship. And then it's also wonderfully simple because um, this simply is an explanation of what does it mean to respond with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our mind, and all of our strength before God, right? So there's this picture of David who danced before the Lord with all of his might, right? Right? there's this interaction between David and his wife, Michael, and she's um, really upset that he's wearing this linen ephod, which is basically like street clothes, and he's out leading a procession, and he's dancing like a common man in the streets, and he's responding, and he says, um, she says, you have made yourself contemptible, and he says, I will be even more contemptible than this. Because this is about the Lord. This is about His power. This is about His glory. And other translations say, I will be even more undignified than this. So every person in this room, right, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have to ask yourself, this isn't about expressiveness, but what does it mean for me to be an undignified worshiper of the living God, right? For some people, it will mean, I'm going to dance with all of my might. For some people, um, you might just be, you know, sticking your toe in the water, and you might start to tap your foot to the beat of the music, right? I mean, this is how do we respond? What does it look like for you to be contemptible, right? What does contemptible worship look like? So that's wh- where we're going, is we're going to look at Second Chan- Samuel chapter 6. We're going to try to understand it in its context And then we're going to try to make some application both individually and as a church. Um, And the first thing that we're going to learn is that God both defines and opens the way for authentic worship. Although worship is our response, God determines and dictates what worship is. And this whole passage centers in on the Ark of the Covenant... All right, So the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God on Earth. Now, uh, if you read the book of First and Second Samuel together, First um, Samuel talks about the ark being stolen by the Philistines. They are the enemies of the people of God. They steal it. Um, And they don't want to keep it because there's like pandemonium that breaks out when they steal the Ark of God. They take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And that god, the statue of that god, bows down and worships the god of Israel that's represented by the Ark of the Covenant. Not only that, but there is a physical manifestation of suffering. There are tumors all over the bodies of the Philistines. So they decide that they're going to take the ark back to the people of God. And and basically, it just sits for 40 years, right? And David, as his first act of king, says, I'm going to reestablish the centrality of worship and the centrality of the presence of God among my people. Right, his first act of king. Right, he's anointed and appointed king in Second Samuel chapter five. The first thing that I want to do is establish worship. It's not I'm not going to pander to you know my political constituents. I'm not going to make a bunch of speeches. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lead the people of God in worship. Now, where the tension comes in is the the mode of transportation. They're going to try to take the ark. From this place, Baal Judah, and they're going to try to take it to Jerusalem. So they it doesn't say whose idea this is, so they place it on an ark. But really, the the Bible says in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers that really the ark is only supposed to be carried by the priests, and they're supposed to carry it with these special poles, and there's supposed to be a special way that you do this. So this ark is on a cart. The oxen stumbles, and there's a man like Uzzah, And this is where this passage, I mean, I've got to be honest, that first blush is terrifying. Uzzah does what I would do, right? If I'm Uzzah's pastor, like I'm patting him on the back, the oxen stumbles, it looks like the ark's going to fall, and he reaches out and touches it, and he's struck dead like that. And everyone is silent. Not only that, because there is a crowd of 30,000 people. This is supposed to be a high point of worship among the people of God there. I mean, you can imagine Centennial Bank Stadium. Sorry, I didn't say that right. I'm I'm working on my Red Wolves chat here, right? 30,000 people playing for a conference championship, which my team hasn't done in a long time, right? 30,000 people there going at the top of their lungs. That's the scene. And Uzzah, reaches out and touches the ark and he's struck dead, right? I mean, this is why people think that there's a disconnect between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? They think this is a God that's going to reach out and zap you. Now, honestly, I think Uzzah would know his Bible, that it it really does say that if anyone reaches out and touches the ark that's not a priest, right, they're instantly going to be struck dead. Like he would have known that. But the reality is the reason that these things strike us so deeply is because we are so used to mercy that when we see God extend justice, right, we're terrified, right? So how do we resolve that? But this, this tension, right, is where the essence of worship is actually found. Um, this was not a very seeker-sensitive worship service. J.D. Greer helps us. In his book, "Not God Enough," he says, "We want a God who will restore us to a peaceful equilibrium, take away our stress, and promise us a blissful afterlife." Most Christians haven't rejected God; they have just reduced him. Even if you are not sure you believe in God, do you approach the concept of Him sensing that He is that if He is there, He is just a bigger slightly wiser version of you. Surely you would expect that if he really does exist, much of what he says will go against your preconceived notions. Um, And this passage is example number one, right? I mean, God acts in ways that are different than us, right? But we have to also know that we are looking at a story that we already know the end to, right? So this is a picture of the holiness and the justice of God, but we also know the end of the story. I think I'm mature enough to talk about this now. So I'll compare this to what took place in my life a couple of weeks back, right? So I'm cheering for my favorite baseball team. They make it to the college world series. They win game 1. This is a three game series. They're leading game 2. Three to two in the bottom of the ninth. They're down to the last strike, and they miss a pop foul. And one thing leads to another, and they lose game two. And I know at that moment it is inevitable that we will lose game three, right? I had actually, I I saw some people, and they said, are you going to watch the game tonight? I was like, no, I already know how this ends. Because I did, and I didn't have to watch it, and I was right. I was hoping that I would be wrong. But I knew how this story would end. Well, it's the same way for us as the people of God. We can't just look at the story of Uzzah without considering Jesus, right? Because this God who is perfect in holiness and righteousness and justice enters the story on behalf of his people. He sends a mediator named Jesus Christ. And this is where worship comes from. That the God who is perfectly holy and just has mercy on us. And so in the book of Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus gives up his last breath on the cross, there is a veil in the new temple that separates the holy place, from the most holy place, where the same ark of the covenant that represents the presence of God, and it's torn from the top to the bottom, saying that everyone that was once had to stay far off now can draw near. Now the presence of God is not something that you have to fear, but now it's something that you desire. Now it's something that you can live in the good of. Right. So Uzzah, right, is a picture of all of us, right? When we we didn't know our way, we didn't know just how righteous and holy God was, but God sent away for us in and through Jesus. And that is reason for us to rejoice. The holiness and the justice of God is met in Jesus so we can draw near. The God of justice has mercy on us, right? And listen, and this, and this is honestly why worship sometimes feels flat, right? That's why sometimes, like, I mean, we use the phrase around here, grace changes everything, right? But I think sometimes when I say that, people hear leniency or, you know, you can kind of just do what you want. What we mean when we say grace changes everything is that this God who is perfectly holy and just has made a way for us to draw near to Him. And now He's not only not opposed to us, He is favorable towards us. That's what it means to sing, and that's what it means to rejoice. And if we don't get that, then we miss the whole point of worship that we can now draw near to God. John Stott says this, We can cry hallelujah with authenticity only after we have first cried, woe is me for I am lost. Right? There is a peril, like we don't just automatically get to approach God on our own terms, but he has made a way. My friend Alan Frau also wrote a book called um, Worshippers Wanted. And in this he says, there is an offering that we bring as worshipers, but it is not the critical factor. What is critical is the offering that God made on our behalf through his son, Jesus Christ, the innocent party, making an offering on behalf of the guilty party. Our offering is a feeble yet profoundly grateful attempt to respond to his gracious offering right that's why we sing songs right this isn't just about tradition this is about people that have received mercy and you see this play out this is a shadow of it in the passage look at verses 13 through 15 of second samuel chapter 6 so after us is struck down they decide they're going to do it the right way they get the priests verse 13 and those who bore the ark of the lord had gone 6 steps He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark with shouting and with sounds of the horn. Right? So this first time it was a disaster. Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark. The second time they take six steps and they say, I'm not going to approach this God on my own. Right? I'm going to make the way that God has provided for us, and they sacrifice before the Lord. And then they go forward with singing and rejoicing that the God of justice has had mercy on me. My next point is, worship is both a gift from God and a gift to God. Worship is a gift from God and worship is a gift to God. There are multiple words for worship in the Old Testament. And it talks about the diversity of the human experience. Seven words to be exact. I'm going to read just the meanings of them to you. The first one is just to lift up our hands, right? As one that wants to receive something, to receive a gift. Someone that's in need. Number two is to boast or to rave in. That's the word that we have, hallelujah. It's boasting in the God that has saved us. The third one is to worship with music skillfully, right? To use the gifts and talents. We say that every week that God has given us to glorify Him. So to play skillfully to the Lord. The fourth is to enter into His gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. The fifth is to kneel or to bow down. The sixth way of it's used in the Old Testament is to sing a spontaneous song to the Lord. Right? This is because our hearts are so full of who God is that we want to find new ways to express our hearts to God. So we sing spontaneously to God. Number seven is to address in a loud tone, as in a shout, right? So this isn't a quiet. I mean, I I don't know if you've ever been around the Hebrew culture, but it's not a quiet one. They sing the praises of the Lord. The New Testament, and this is even better, the primary word that's used in the New Testament says this, it's to come towards or to kiss. It denotes affection, right? So worship is about God before it's about us. It's about us Responding to who he is, his beauty, his majesty, his holiness, his justice, all of that God is now for us in and through Jesus Christ. So we want to offer up our lives and our bodies, our time, our resources, because this God is worthy of all of our worship, right? It's not about primarily about how we feel, it's not about how you enter a room on a Sunday morning, it's not about your religious background, it's about who God is and what he's done. So the challenge for a lot of us, right? It's not my challenge. My challenge is to be overly emotional. But for most people, the, the challenge here in the South is to take truths that you knew growing up, right? Truths that you probably took for granted, right? That you maybe learned in a Sunday school class somewhere with felt board Jesus, and to allow that, those truths to travel the distance from your head to your heart in such a way that it makes you want to praise him. And and the missing link in all of that is like you can't drum this up, right? The only thing that can cause worship to happen among the people of God is for the Spirit of God to breathe on us and open up our eyes to see Jesus. Worship is a response to seeing Jesus. Now, some days, right, you are going to be on the mountaintop and some days you are going to want to glorify God with all that you are. Everything that you do, you want to be loved and you want to serve other people. But it's also, worship is also when things aren't going well, right? And all you can do on those days is simply ask help. Both of those things are worship to God. So we want to offer up, worship is a gift from God and it's a gift to God. Alan Frout also says this. He says, So what does it mean to be a true worshiper? First, I believe it's someone who is true in focus. Someone who understands that worship is not for his or her pleasure, but for God's pleasure. So we're gathering here on a Sunday morning to offer a sacrifice of praise to who God is. Romans 12 language. We're offering up our bodies as a living sacrifice to who God is, right? We want to respond. We want to bring him pleasure. We're not trying to earn anything. We're not trying to merit anything, right? I think I can identify with this because I'm a dad, right? My kids, I, I never love them anymore, but there are moments when just the pride in who God has made them to be and what he's doing in their life brings me so much joy, right? Right? I'm able to look into their lives and see the person that God has made them to be, right? And I take pleasure in that. And, right, regardless of where you're at in your story this morning, right, you have the same opportunity to bring all of who you are before the God of the universe and bring Him pleasure. Now, I think there's a lot we can learn from David's response to his wife, Michael. I mean, she is indignant over his style of worship, right? And and honestly, that's the picture of what it means to be a Christian in the South, right? I mean, people don't care if you claim Jesus to be your Savior, but they do get really uncomfortable if you're sold out to him. Right? They do get really uncomfortable if you're all about him all the time, 365, 24-7. I'm not saying be perfect by any means, but I'm saying if you are sold out for the living God here, you're pretty undignified. right? Because it's all about outward appearances. It's all about social circles. It's all about maintaining the generational presence inside the church. All of those things. And, and who God is is almost assumed. Right so we want to fight really hard to become a group of people that authentically respond to God. So basically his wife Michael is saying you should act like a king. You know, be more like my father's soul. Like, she wanted him to come in with pomp and circumstance and to wear his royal robe and have this big coronation. And David said, I am acting like a king. I'm leading my people in the worship of God. He didn't make any distinction between himself. He dressed as a common man, and he let loose before the Lord because he was worthy, right? That's a true picture of leadership. It wasn't, uh, I mean, the... Most important person by any measure in that kingdom was the king. And he's saying, this is going to be the passion and the priority of my life and of my people. So worship is a gift to God, but it also is a gift to us. And we see throughout the Psalms that this is where we encounter God himself. Where not only we respond to who he is, but he responds and he inhabits the praises of his people, right? He meets people in their neediness. When they cry out for mercy, he extends mercy. When you are in need, he meets you at your point of need. God gives us the gift of himself. So I want to just make a a couple of points of application and then we're going to hopefully respond to him well first application is authentic worship incorporates both our private devotion and our public confession, right? It's both of those things. What happens in private, right? So we're going to be talking about big W worship, which is whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? Some people love that verse because, man, I'm always worshiping. Okay, um, that's important, right? But there's an order to this. And so to illustrate this, I want you to think, when you think about worship, I want you to think about Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. So enjoy this. I grew up in the 80s, so this is all I got. All right. All right, you can laugh. You don't have to laugh. That may be cheesy, but hopefully you'll remember. Like in the 80s, I, I think Reese's was trying to apologize for the fact that they used both peanut butter and chocolate together, that they actually belong together. Um, but just like for honest show of hands, has anyone in here, I'll give, you, I'll give you a free book if you have. Have you ever seen anyone eating a jar of peanut butter inside a movie theater? No, right? I mean, it's just like, you did? All right, Lois, free book for you. All right, that's great. Probably sn- snuck it in, right so um, but these things are made to ge- to go together, our both our private devotion and our public confession and and there is an order to this, like for for worship to be sweet and real and not hollow in here, it's not about earning anything, but it has to be fueled by worship in the secret place, right you can't. You can't just come in here and 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 then be able to authentically respond to God in public if you haven't authentically responded to Him in private. But also, like you're not made to be on your own, right? There's something unique and special that happens when the people of God gather together that does not happen in your living room. That doesn't happen on a hillside. It's when God decides that He's going to tear back and rend the reality of heaven and the atmosphere of earth changes with his presence. That doesn't happen in the same way when you are alone that it does when the people of God are gathered and focused on him. And and my wife and I, we were talking about this last night. I mean, the high point for me in worship, if it were up to me, I would never preach a sermon. Like, I would just stay in the front, and I would just sing, and I would just worship, because it it's just the height to me is to be able to sing praises to God with people that are united in mind and heart and body and spirit and all of those things. It's a wonderful gift. And, and I talked to her and she's like, I'd rather be on the beach, <laughs> you know, worshiping God in private. And so both of those things are expressions of worship. It takes both of those things to come together, the public gathering and in private. But, But there is an order. Worship must begin in the secret place before the Lord. The second application is healthy corporate worship includes breathing in truths about God and breathing out praise to God. It includes both breathing in truths about God and breathing out praise to God. We borrowed this phrase from uh, Matt Redman. Singing together is a wonderful and a powerful gift to us as his people it glorifies God. It unifies us together. And God meets us where we are. So, a distinction that we're trying to make here as a church, right? Because this is, this is, a, this is the crux of the matter. There's a difference between singing about God in the abstract and singing to God as a worshiper. Right? You must Use your mind, and we're, we try to do both of those things on a Sunday morning where there are songs, and, and you heard a couple this morning, like Rock of Ages, cleft for me, full of doctrine and truth. Let me hide myself in thee. Right? There's a way to think about that where it's just this abstract song, and then there's a way to sing that song where you're breathing in truth about who God is, that He's holy and He's righteous and He's just, but He also extends mercy. Right? We want to do both of those things. And then there's songs where after you breathe in these wonderful truths about God, that you must let them out. There's one thing that remains. right? After everything else passes away, the one thing that remains is the love that never fails, that never gives up, that never runs out on me. So we try to do both of those things where we exercise our mind and we think about who God is, but we also want to respond with all of our hearts in simple ways to who God is. So I want to just this is the difference between singing about God and singing to God. I can tell you about my wife Jen, right? We have been married for 18 years. We have five children, right? She smiles a lot, right? All of those things are true. But I can also talk to her, right? She's in the back. You're the most beautiful person in the world to me, right? Your smile lights up a room. I love the way you parent our five children. You are an exceptional mother, and you are a gift to me, right? It's a difference between talking about, right, and talking to, singing about and singing to. So in a corporate setting, even if it is a song that engages a lot of doctrine, We want to exercise our mind. But right after you're you're singing Rock of Ages, Cleft for me, I mean, there there should be something inside of us. God, let me hide in you right now. Let me hide in you because of all of my sins. Let me hide in you because of all my guilt. Let me hide in you because you love me, right? There's there's just this ongoing two-way conversation. You may be singing the words, but your heart is thinking about the circumstances of your life. That's what it means to breathe in and breathe out. It's It's a give and it's a take, it's responding with all that we are, right? Breathe in truths about God. So we're going to take some time this morning to try to work that out together as a church. So I'm going to invite the, the band to come on up. I'm just going to pray that we would be able to both think deep thoughts about God and respond authentically from the place that we are, where we are, whether that's a place of rejoicing or a place of weeping. And the truth of who God is, God, I pray that right now that you would come and that you would inhabit the praises of your people, that we would be able to worship you with all of our lives, but we also would lift up a song that is worthy of who you are. That we would be undignified not just by our, um, not but just by the posture of our bodies, but I pray that we would live peculiar lives that cause people to ask questions um, as they encounter us. That it would be real that it would be authentic, and that it would be a picture of you that has real mercy on us.